welcome to City Breaks London, episode 22. Yes, we have got that far, indeed. I'm Marion Jones. Thank you very much for listening in. Today we're off to two lovely areas out of the city centre, riverside spots, and that is Kew and Richmond. A classy day out, or two days out perhaps, there's lots to see, quite a lot of history to delve into, some hills to climb, the prospect of a spot of boating. I've even found a 19th century extract where someone indulged in croquet. Yes, a very English day out. So we're off to Q, written about in a poem written in 1791 as Imperial Q by Thames's Glittering Side. And in another poem written a century or so later, there's the refrain telling you to go down to Q in lilac time, in lilac time, in lilac time. Go down to Kew in lilac time. It isn't far from London. And if you go there today, what would you find? Well, lovely little shops and cafes, those gardens, the country's smallest royal residence, lots to enjoy. And nearby Richmond, not to be outdone, also mentioned in an 18th century poem, as where the Thames first rural grows. I fancy that's less true today than it was then. But even so, you will know for sure that you are well away from central London. The same poem went on to give a description, mentioning lots of things that you can still see little sightings of today. There is talk of the goodly prospect which spreads around. I think that's 18th century for nice view. It talks about hills and dales and woods and lawns and spires. And all of this all around you until, as the poem puts it, the stretching landscape into smoke decays. So very much giving the idea that Richmond was right on the cusp, out of town, almost in the country. Mary Russell Mitford, writing in 1832, wasn't quite so sure. It's not really the country, she said. She put it better. It is no more like the genuine, untrimmed country than a garden is like a field. But before you get the idea that she didn't like Richmond, let me tell you how she continued. I do not say this in disparagement. Richmond is nature in a court dress, but still nature. Aye, and very lovely nature too. Richmond too is full of history. Think of Tudor kings out hunting, George the Fourth honeymooning there after secretly marrying his mistress. Sadly, the one-time Richmond Palace is no more, but there's still plenty of nature. Two and a half thousand acres, in fact, of Richmond Park. Generations of royalty used to hunt there. These days, the rest of us are allowed in too. So, lots to look forward to. Okay, I'm going to start with Kew, which is surely best known for Kew Gardens. And if you're wondering why that's plural, I can tell you. It's actually two gardens, or it was, joined into one. Because George II and Queen Caroline lived around about these parts, and they had a great big garden on their estate. And next door was an estate owned by their son Frederick, the Prince of Wales, who sadly never became king because he died. And after that, One of the things that his widow, Princess Augusta, took solace in was the garden. She had lots of plans for it, she enjoyed being in it, and she, in fact, set it up first as a botanic garden, as it was known. And things continued from there. George III, so that's George II's grandson, was also very interested in the development of the garden, and he asked one Joseph Banks to run it for him. Now that was a smart move because Joseph Banks used to go on lots of voyages with Captain Cook. He collected many plants, brought them all back, encouraged others to do the same. And so the growth of Kew Gardens, by this stage it was run as one enterprise, as a centre of botanical excellence, was further assured. 
In 1840, the gardens became national property, given to the nation by Queen Victoria. Thank you, ma'am. And very soon then, it was open to the public. Being the Victorian era, there were amazing buildings put up, like the Palm House. They got lots of their knowledgeable scientists on the case, plant hunters, botanists, etc. And so, the development of Kew Gardens into a centre for global research was further continued. To date one example, in 1876, seeds from rubber trees were brought to Kew, where seedlings were grown, plants were looked after and nurtured and researched, and eventually they were sent back to Sri Lanka and Malaysia, where they ensured the growth of the rubber industry. If you go today, what will you find? Well, 300 acres, the world's largest collection of living plants, a centre of horticultural excellence, every kind of plant you can think of, many grown for their beauty, some grown for research purposes, perhaps for medicinal purposes and so on, and all in all, what you have there is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. When it was given this illustrious title, part of the citation read as follows. It has a unique combination of plants, architecture, art and landscape. 260 years worth of science and ideas. It doesn't mention the fact that it's also a cracking day out. And one you can make a number of times. I know in the guidebook it did make the point that, of course, of course, in every season, it's going to look very different. Once you get inside, you can wander about, enjoying the splendour of the massive trees, take all sorts of winding little pathways, look at the lawns and the flower beds. Not, by the way, any old flower beds, but ones with titles like the Great Broadwalk Borders. There are natural woodland areas, lakes and ponds, every sort of garden. I looked at the list. I can almost say it goes from A to Z. In fact, the first one is aquatic and the last one is woodland. And in between, all kinds of other little areas with titles like rock garden and rose garden and kitchen garden. As the UNESCO citation said, there's even more than just, in inverted commas, the wonders of nature, because yes, there's stunning architecture from every stage in the garden's history. 38 listed buildings, in fact. Okay, so a couple of examples. Um, 17th century, Kew Palace. 18th century, the Great Pagoda. 19th century, the Palm House and the Water Lily House. 20th century, the Princess of Wales Conservatory. And even in our own century, although we haven't got very far into it, there is already the Hive, a totally unique structure where, and I'm not quite sure how this works, 900 LED lights are somehow linked up to what the bees are doing and they tell the life of honeybees and they'll explain their role in pollination. As ever, when I take you somewhere marvellous, I don't want to just list everything that's in there because how long would that take and how dull would it be? So I've picked out just a very tiny handful of highlights to talk a little bit more about. But I do think the main thing is not to lose sight of the idea of just wandering and seeing what you come across. Okay, so the highlights. Lots of glass houses, which will, as the guidebook puts it, transport you to other worlds, to the steamy rainforest, the cool, arid desert, and the bright, breezy mountainside. There's the palm house, the water lily house, the bonsai house, the temperate house, and so on. The Palm House, for example, built in the 1840s, so just as the gardens were becoming open to the public. A rainforest environment, the place where, for example, they did that research on rubber plants. Work continues today on plants like cocoa and coffee and bananas and vanilla. 
but overall it's really just the place to give you a little bit of a sense of a rainforest and all the wonders that grow in it, and perhaps send you away with the renewed intention that yes, we really must keep our eye on the rainforests. In the Princess of Wales Conservatory, that's another highlight, you will find the most humongous collection of orchids. Definitely a good idea to walk up and down the Great Broadwalk borders, 320 metres long, possibly the longest borders in the world, full in spring of a mass of spring bulbs, but even that's not the peak. Peak time is summertime. There are apparently 30,000 plants in those borders, and can you imagine, there is a plant list given for each bed. You can even buy a book in the shop of the designs used, so inspiration for your own garden. Another absolute highlight, which sadly I didn't get to enjoy when I went because we went in rain and bluster and I didn't feel brave enough to go up on the treetop walkway. But I should have. It's 18 metres above the ground, 200 metres long, platforms here and there so you can stop and look at the far-reaching views of the gardens themselves, of course, and the London skyline a little bit further into the distance. But most importantly, where, again quoting the guidebook, you can get a rare insight into the complex ecosystem of the forest canopy, a world teeming with birds and insects, lichens and fungi. There are also scattered through the gardens a great number of follies, those little structures that someone or other put up just because they could. I don't think most of them serve a purpose, they're just for pure enjoyment, and the greatest of the lot has to be, surely, the Great Pagoda, built in 1762, as a gift for Princess Augusta. This was a time when things Chinese, or as they called it, Chinoiserie, was becoming fashionable, hence the idea for this. It's got an octagonal structure, ten stories high, tapers off so that each floor up is a little bit smaller than the one below, so nice and stable. And do look out for the 80 crouching dragons which decorate it. The original 18th century structure was decorated with dragons, which unfortunately got lost somewhere along the way but more recently they've been recreated exactly as they were, and stunningly beautiful they are too. Nearby, of course, there's a garden with plants of Chinese origin, and there are two in the grounds, in different places, no fewer than three art galleries. There's also a whole programme of exhibitions, summer concerts, etc. But I have to say that the thing I liked best, certainly as far as the buildings are concerned, is Kew Palace. It's inside the grounds of the gardens, and entry to it is included in the general ticket price. A fascinating place to look round, full of history. Let me try and give a very quick summary. Built in the 1630s, and acquired a century later by Queen Caroline, the wife of George II. She wanted it as a sort of annex to nearby Richmond Lodge, where the court often spent time. This was a house, she thought, it would be perfect to stay in with her three teenage daughters, Anne, Amelia and Caroline. I don't think they were there all that long because the girls all married and left, but then in the next generation, the Prince of Wales, Frederick, decided it would be a good house for his teenagers. Two boys this time, George, the future George III, and Edward. They lived there, they had their lessons there with their personal tutors, and when George III grew up and had, wait for it, 15 children, he decided that Kew would be a great place to base himself and his growing family, at least for part of the week. So it had a period of being a happy family home, but it had a darker side too, because when George III became ill in later life, this was the place to which he was 
sent to retreat away from the public eye. As he was nearing the end of his life, the big question was, who would carry on the succession? You might find it hard to imagine that of all those children, there wasn't an obvious solution, and so two of his adult sons were persuaded to marry in haste, abandon their mistresses, I should say, and marry in haste, and the double wedding was conducted here in Kew Palace. In his younger days, when he was well, George III loved it here at Kew. Together with Windsor, it was one of the places to which he could escape from central London. I certainly see as little of London as I possibly can, he wrote, and I am never a volunteer there. No, much better to be out here at Kew for riding and hunting and lots of walks, for family dinners, for card evenings, music evenings. George himself played the flute and the harpsichord. And I know he was a great reader, so I like to imagine him sitting here reading too. I found some little snippets which show off his love for his wife, Queen Charlotte. There was one involving a day when George had been to Portsmouth to see off a ship, perhaps, or welcome one home or something, and he returned to Kew and was seen to leap out of his carriage as soon as he arrived and before the servants could get there to open the door. He rushed off to greet Charlotte and, as the observer wrote, he seized the Queen, whom he had met at the door, round the waist and carried her in his arms into the room. One of Queen Charlotte's ladies of the bedchamber also noted that George and Charlotte, quote, always dined tete a tete. They were quite well known by the locals, often seen out and about. The diarist Fanny Burney, who was quite a frequent visitor here, has left us a description written in 1786 about one of these days, which she described as an exceedingly pretty scene. The king and queen were in queue, back from London, where a day or two earlier an attempt had been made on George's life. Someone had tried to stab him. And when he returned to Kew, the good people of Kew came out in large numbers to show how pleased they were that he was back. Kew Green, wrote Fanny Burney, was, quote, quite filled with all the inhabitants of the place, the lame, old, blind, sick and infants, who all assembled, dressed in their Sunday garb, to line the sides of the roads through which their majesties passed, attended by a band of musicians, arranged in the front, who began God Save the King the moment they came upon the green and finished it with loud huzzas. Fanny Burney goes on to relate that the Queen was moved to tears by this and said, I shall always love little Q for this. As I mentioned, they had an enormous family, 15 children born in 21 years. So the oldest, George, who went on to become Prince Regent in his father's illness and then George IV, was born in 1762, and the last child, Amelia, was born in 1783. Unusually for the time, there doesn't seem to be any record of Charlotte having miscarriages or of stillborn babies, but that doesn't mean that tragedy didn't befall them, because two of their sons died when they were very young. Little Octavius was born in 1779 and died when he was four, and Prince Alfred, born three years later in 1782, died at the age of two. George was believed to be a very affectionate father and was of course devastated by this, writing in one of his letters in 1784, there will be no heaven for me if Octavius is not there. The general consensus is that the family had a fairly quiet, largely uneventful life here really while the children were growing up. I found a description of George by John Cannon in his book George III, which read, George was the first king in living memory whose domestic life was beyond reproach. 
And I think that gives you some idea of the atmosphere in the house in those days. Although I also discovered that as the girls grew up, they led very quiet lives, almost cloistered, you could say, closely watched by their mother. And that at times, understandably, this was a huge frustration. The oldest daughter, Charlotte, for example, complained to her brother about the, quote, tiresome and confined life that she was forced to lead. And she went on to say that any marriage would be, quote, preferable to the misery I am a slave to at present. She did in fact marry the Duke of Württemberg, in fact, in 1797, when she was 30, and I suppose it's telling to read that she disappeared to Germany and never saw her father again. It certainly was a family with problems, perhaps the largest one being the behaviour of the oldest son, George, who was going to go on to be George IV. He led the most lavish lifestyle, ran up enormous debts to the point where bailiffs would appear, the banks were refusing to lend him any more money, his father had to keep bailing him out. He made a disastrous marriage to Caroline of Brunswick, had many mistresses, including one whom he secretly married, and his father, driven to exasperation, said at one point that, quote, every absurdity and impropriety may be expected from the unruly passions of my son. The other sons were not much better, also rather dissolute. The second son, William, for example, wrote to his father, at the age of 34, and when his father was recovering from illness, to complain that his allowance wasn't enough. And actually the wording of it is something to savour. He wrote, I think it my duty not to incur the risk of deceiving your majesty by giving expectations that I can live within the present income. And then, of course, there was the question of the succession. In the last decade of George III's life, his son George was ruling as Prince Regent, but that didn't solve things entirely because George had no children. That is to say, he didn't have any legitimate children. His one daughter, Charlotte, born to his marriage with Caroline, had died in childbirth, and the illegitimate children that he had with his mistress, of course, didn't count. By 1818, the next three sons, William, Frederick and Edward, were all happily ensconced with mistresses, so no legitimate children either, and something really had to be done. What I have seen described, in fact, as an unseemly rush to get them to abandon their mistresses and marry, perhaps, a foreign princess, a German one, maybe, there were lots of those about, and get on with producing an heir. And so it was that the double wedding was arranged at haste, and it took place at Kew, because Queen Charlotte was there at the time, really very ill, too ill it was thought to be moved, and so the wedding would have to be here. And it took place on the 11th of July, 1818. Prince William had been persuaded to cast his mistress aside and to marry Princess Adelaide of Saxe-Meiningen, and the fourth son, Edward Duke of Kent, also disposed of his French mistress, Madame de Saint-Laurent, and married Princess Victoria of Leiningen. Edward, who went on to become the father of Queen Victoria, does sound a bit of a cad. He made it clear that he expected an additional allowance from Parliament in return for doing something as selfless as marrying not for love but to produce an heir, and he was also expecting some help with payment of his debts. Was he at all sheepish about any of this? Not in the slightest. As for the payment of my debts, he said, I don't call them great. The nation, on the contrary, is greatly my debtor. And so it was that the marriage took place. The order of service had to be printed in German and in English. 
and when the brides tried to say a few words after the service was over, it became clear that neither of them spoke English. I enjoyed reading about this in Elizabeth Longford's biography, Queen Victoria, particularly when she went on to explain how this solution to the problem of succession worked out. The great matrimonial marathon of the four royal dukes was singularly meagre in its results, she wrote. It's a very sad story, really. William, who already had a large number of illegitimate children, did go on to have two daughters with his new wife, both of whom died in infancy. And so it was that Edward's daughter, Princess Victoria, became eventually the next in line to the throne. Very sadly for her, her father, who, as Elizabeth Longford puts it, had never suffered from a day's illness in his life, died eight months after she was born. But she, of course, the daughter of the fourth son of all those fifteen children, went on to reign for over sixty years and produce a line of descendants which leads directly to Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles today, many of whom married into other European families. So, yes, definitely a family with some problems, but perhaps the greatest of the lot was King George's long, sad, wretched end to life and the illness that he suffered from. The first time things looked serious was in 1788, stomach pains, becoming really quite unwell, sleeping very badly, a bit shaky on his feet, confusion, sometimes even violence. Doctors were brought in, all kinds of radical treatments were tried, including a straitjacket, a restraining chair. For a while, things looked very bleak, to the point, in fact, where only a few months later, it was announced that the king was better. On the 23rd of April, 1789, St George's Day, of course, a thanksgiving service was held at St Paul's Cathedral, because a grateful nation was happy that their king was back on his feet. Medals commemorating his recovery were struck, and the whole thing was deemed to be over. But sadly, it wasn't to be. In the early 1800s, the illness returned. George had all the symptoms that he'd ever had. He himself was very despondent, writing, for example, in 1801, I've prayed to God all night that I might die, or that he would spare my reason. It's generally agreed that the date at which George's health broke down permanently was 1810. That was certainly the year when he made his last public appearance at Windsor in a celebration on the anniversary of his accession. But it was also the year in which his youngest and possibly favourite daughter, Amelia, also became ill and died. It's thought that he never recovered from that. Certainly all the dreadful treatments were back. He was physically restrained again. He was showing very little awareness of the world around him. He withdrew more and more becoming blind, deaf, very elderly, so out of touch in the end that he didn't even recognise his own family. He spent quite a lot of his time at Kew, but from 1806 onwards, he was much more often in Windsor, where, fully 14 years later, in 1820, he died of pneumonia and was buried in St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. So, as you wander around Kew Palace, there are lots and lots of different things to imagine happening in that building. All those family times of country pursuits and evenings of music and cards. The much sadder times, the worrying times when George was so ill and sent here as much as anything to keep him out of the public eye. Once again, I don't intend to go through everything that's in the building, but just a few highlights. From the ground floor, for example, you can visit the King's Breakfast Room and think about Princes George and Frederick working there with their tutors. There's another room known as the King's Library, now used as a general exhibition room, but where you can imagine George 
and some of the 65,000 books and manuscripts that we know he'd amassed by the time he died. To the left of the front door, on the ground floor, is the service wing, where George was kept secluded during his illness in 1804 and 1805. And you can visit the King's Dining Room too, the room in which George's doctor played a trick on him. He lured him in there, ostensibly to talk about the painting hanging over the mantelpiece, but in fact to trap him so that he could be escorted away into seclusion. Up on the first floor, more rooms to do with the Queen. The Queen's boudoir, for example. Her more private room into which she would withdraw, perhaps with some of her women friends, to do needlework or spinning, or to play cards. There's still a card table set up there today. Then there's the Queen's drawing room, a much more public place. Pause there for a moment, imagining a temporary altar being installed, because it was in that room that the double marriage took place between two of George and Charlotte's sons, and the two German princesses chosen by, or possibly for, them. Also on that floor, Princess Elizabeth's bedroom, she being the daughter who took charge of the household when George was sent here so ill in 1804 and 1805. And up another floor, bedrooms for the other princesses, Augusta and Amelia. Also in the grounds of Kew Gardens, a little distance away in fact, is Queen Charlotte's Cottage, as it's known, a rustic retreat built for Queen Charlotte and family so they could have picnics out there, take tea... I've read that it too was used for the double wedding in 1818, so if the service is in the house, I guess the refreshments were served out here. We know too, because it was somewhere that the children were often taken on walks, that it was set up as a sort of playground area for them, complete with a menagerie, set up in 1792. Pheasants, exotic birds and, wait for it, kangaroos. We know this from the diary of one Reverend William McCritchie, written in 1795, about a day when he went out to Kew, discovered that in fact the gardens were shut that day, but that what he called the pleasure ground was open, and where he saw, quote, a prodigy of nature, the kangaroo from Botany Bay. Pause to think how exotic that must have been at the end of the 18th century. And the Reverend McCritchie was certainly very taken with it, noting that it had, quote, an amazing ability on its two hinder legs, and explaining that a mother kangaroo kept its young in its pouch. News indeed to most 18th century Englanders, I fancy. So, leaving Kew behind, let's pop along the river to Richmond, where, as a poet in the 18th century wrote, the Silver Thames first rural grows. Diary entry written in 1810 by Louis Simon talks about pleasure boats on the Thames and how they were the way that Londoners not working enjoyed themselves. So he wrote, this latter river makes the delight of the Cockneys of London, and on Sunday particularly, the number of pleasure boats plying between Richmond and the capital is prodigious. They are generally covered with an awning and decorated with flags and streamers. All very jolly. He talks about them stopping for a repas champêtre, which I think might be very fancy English, brackets French, for picnic. But he also explains that not everybody liked all this enjoying yourself. The Bishop of London, for example, thought it was a, quote, profanation of the Sabbath, and tried hard to stop it, although in fact I think it was so popular that in the end he had to give up. So, Richmond then, what is there to see there? Well, you could certainly pop into Richmond Museum and learn about the history of the area, which includes the sadly no longer with us Richmond Palace, which dated originally from the 12th century, where momentous events took place, for example, the death of Edward III, Henry V jousting, 
Queen Mary and Philip of Spain honeymooning, but I'm afraid it all disappeared under Cromwell. You can go too to Richmond Hill, where there are fine views to be seen. Another of our prolific 18th century writers, the Reverend William Cole, described it thus. The most beautiful and charming prospect of Richmond, with a variety of fine villas and gardens on the banks of the Thames. So all of that you could see from the top of the hill. Horace Walpole went up there too in 1784, and he saw a hot air balloon, one of the very first, that being only a year or so after the French Montgolfier brothers first took off in one. Horace Walpole described it all quite poetically. He saw a bundle, he said, in the sky, floating across no bigger than the moon, and flying with, as he put it, much composure. But, and this is my favourite part, he didn't actually see whether it really alighted on Richmond Hill or somewhere else, because, quote, Mrs Hobart was going by, and her coiffure prevented my seeing it alight. Ladies in the 18th century did do massive hair. And once you get to the top of Richmond Hill, you have the whole of Richmond Park at your disposal. Two and a half thousand acres of land which used to be the Royal Hunting Grounds, where there were red deer and ancient oak trees and all those things that make you proud to be English. But something that makes you perhaps less proud, there's Henry's Mound, a little hillock there, said to be the high point from which Henry VIII stood and watched to see a flare being set off at the Tower of London to tell him that, yes, Anne Boleyn had indeed been executed. Historians now think this story may not actually be true, but it's too good not to pass on to you, I feel. So Richmond is definitely day-out territory. Actually, I think you could spend two or three days in the environ because a day in the park, for sure, allow plenty of time to visit Ham House, an extravagant Jacobean mansion, and you're just a stone's throw from both Wimbledon and Twickenham where you may have the possibility of seeing some top-notch rugby or tennis, and where, if not, you can certainly visit museums on those two topics. And, or, I believe, tour the grounds. So there's lots to do. And just to finish off the episode, I thought I might recount a boat trip which took place from Kew to Richmond, so nicely encapsulating both halves of the podcast, and which was written up in a diary entry in 1864, by a diarist with a wonderful name, Rafe Neville Lester. And it just conjures up, I think, the atmosphere of the area, and also a Victorian flavour. Some rather posh people on an outing, behaving, of course, very properly, although not without a little dose of sexism, reminding us that this was written long, long ago. OK, so Rafe went on a boating party, with some people also rather wonderfully named, Clara Daly, Viv Fenton, Agnes Brooks, and my absolute favourite, Tupholm the Parson. And in fact, they were later joined by two other guests. Not named, or at least not in the extract that I read. And we are reminded that if young ladies and gentlemen went out together in those days, they certainly had to be chaperoned. Something which presumably explains the presence of Tupholm the Parson. Anyway, they played a spot of croquet, and then they decided to go boating. And this is what Rafe tells us about how that went. Some of the girls took part in rowing, he says, apparently surprised. However, it turns out, who knew, that they could manage this, although possibly not without a little bit of mansplaining on Rafe's part. OK, so this is how he describes it. Miss Brooks is a very jolly sort of girl, and as she pulled bow oar, I sat behind her and instructed her in the novel art and talked and chaffed with her to my satisfaction. I'm not entirely sure what chaffing means, but I do hope it was also to 
the equal satisfaction of Miss Brooks. Doesn't that conjure up a long ago era? It certainly does for me. Anyway, Kew and Richmond. I hope I've conjured up for you a picture of two areas really very easily reached from central London, where you can have a very different sort of day out. Perhaps especially a good idea if you're spending several days in the city and feel a little bit overloaded. Just to look ahead at next week, when I'm going to offer the last of my around London sort of visits, we're going a little bit further out this time, still along the Thames, to Windsor and Eton. Easy day out distance from the capital, and an integral part of royal life here in Britain. So I hope very much that you've enjoyed today's episode. If you have and felt like saying so by leaving a review, that would be marvellous. Thank you very much. And I hope too that you'll be joining me in a week's time for a trip to Windsor and Eton. Meanwhile though, thank you very much for listening today and goodbye. <laughs>